Good evening. And to those streaming from near and far. So tonight we're going to consider the subject of the first 19 verses that we've just read together in that wonderful prayer of Daniel. That personal urgent appeal of his to what he understood in his prayer to his God. It's a prayer that reveals the mind of Daniel, doesn't it? The mind of our brother. And God instantly answers that in a vision as we consider next week in the 70-week prophecy. And here's just a rough breakdown of the chapter. So, first of all, we see there in verses 1 and 2, Daniel understands Jerusalem's time of desolation is up. So he's been doing some Bible study and he's realising that there's a time for God to act. Verse 3 to 19, that's the main prayer, praise for Israel, Jerusalem, and God's name to be honoured. Verses 20 to 23, then we get Gabriel instantly is sent to answer Daniel with a vision. He actually sort of interrupts the prayer. We didn't read it. It's the following verse, verse 20, whilst I was speaking. Now we'll look at that a little bit as we creep into that a bit tonight. And then verse 24 and 27, subject of our second study, is the vision of the 70 weeks prophecy about Jerusalem and Messiah. So that's the breakdown of the chapter. So what was the motive for this wonderful prayer that we have recorded for our learning? Well, his motive is the following. We see that it's the first years, we read there in verse 1 there, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. And therefore it's the time when the Babylonian power had been replaced by the Medo-Persian power. And therefore the ruling power of Babylon that had conquered Judah and Jerusalem had been swept away. And now Cyrus and Darius reigning co-regent, Darius reigning in Babylon, because it was a Medo-Persia empire, if you remember, were there. Let's just, just turn back a chapter, chapter 6 and verse 28. You can see how the record puts the two together of those kings, Darius and Cyrus. Chapter 6, verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The word and doesn't necessarily mean and following or chronologically. It has the idea of even. So even Darius reigning at the same time. And there's other evidence we haven't got time to look at where that word is used in Daniel, meaning that. So therefore, Daniel here, the first year of that reign, realises the Babylonian power has been swept away and it's now time from his Bible study to know that the time of Jerusalem's desolations is up. We see that he understood by Jeremiah's prophecy the 70 years of desolation of the land of Jerusalem was now complete. So keep a marker in Daniel, please, Daniel chapter 9, obviously. And we'll go back to Jeremiah 25. So this was Daniel's Bible, and he's reading his Bible, he's studying it, and we know he was diligent in looking these things out, a man that sought greatly to understand these things. And he realises by reading Jeremiah 25 the following, and we read it together in verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So there's the 70-year time frame. And note verse 12, And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and make it a perpetual desolation. And so 70 years was promised, and and he read that they will be punished. Babylon, that had conquered his land, had taken him in captivity from Jerusalem, would be punished. And 70 years was the time frame, after 70 years. And here he is, living in the first reign of that king of the next power, the non-Babylonian power. He's read his Bible, and he is praying to his God. 
because he also read another part of Jeremiah, which told him that should be the response of the faithful Jew to such a thing. Daniel understood that God's people would return from captivity to Jerusalem when that time period was up. So let's go over to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10, it says, For thus saith Yahweh, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, same time frame, I will visit you, and before my good word toward you, and causing you to return to this place. So putting the two together, he knew 70 years was up, and God was going to return them from captivity to the place, the place that's the focus of his prayer, Jerusalem. We haven't got time now, but you can scan your eyes down verse 11, 12, 13, 14. Didn't have time to share it with you, but I've done it in my study. Here is this response of the faithful Jew to that prophecy. And Daniel fulfilled it. He turned his face. He prayed towards Jerusalem and he sought them. And you see some language that we read, but that's for your own study and follow up, I guess, because we don't have time for that tonight, sadly. So he's expecting now this new power coming into being. It's the time for the Jewish captives to return. He understood he was living in a time of expectation for that return from captivity. As we say, due to this prophecy that we've just turned up. He didn't know exactly that time. Because we know that the deportations, there was four. There's four desolations. Three by Nebuchadnezzar, well, three by Nebuchadnezzar and the fourth, they ran off to Egypt before he came down again and the land was totally desolate. So there's four. So which one was it? Which one was it going to be the one that caused the 70 years of captivity to be up? Well, it's interesting if you turn to Ezra chapter 1, we see that there's the first decree. So keep in, um, turn over to Ezra chapter 1. And this is the one that, amazing, isn't it? The accuracy of Bible prophecy. And you'll see this tonight and we'll see it again following study how God's timetable is precise he's working out his work in the nations and in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 we see that it was in the first reign of Darius we saw that co-region with Cyrus and here's the first year of Darius Cyrus and what does he do verse 1 now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled what you have just read what Daniel just read might be fulfilled. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven and earth, give me all kingdoms of the earth, and hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. The proclamation, the first proclamation for them to return, to go back from that captivity that goes on in that chapter. And therefore, there's the link. And it was amazing. That was 70 years exactly after the first time that Nebuchadnezzar came down and came upon Jehoiakim and took him off. Is there not a lesson for us, brothers and sisters, here in 2020? We live in a dispensation of faith. Yet we have the signs to indicate that we are expecting a greater restoration of the Jerusalem. A greater, the greatest restoration of Israel. Yes, they're there in the land, but they do not know their Messiah. And therefore, we too should study and be ready for that day. Just as Daniel studied his Bible, we study ours, and particularly Revelation that gives us that. So what was his response to such a thing? Well, you can see it there. I'm not going to go through it because we haven't got time, as I said, but he fulfilled. There's the actions you can see in Daniel 9. We read it together. <clears throat> 
And there's the actions of Jeremiah 29. And then you see the response of God. And then you see the response of God that's prophesied in Jeremiah 29. And so Daniel, knowing Jeremiah's prophecy, sought to fulfill what was the personal response of a faithful brother, a faithful sister, a faithful Jew that understood these things. And he communicated with his God for the fulfillment of his word, for the return from captivity. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 then. Hopefully you've got a marker in there. And we can see here in Daniel chapter 9 how in verse 3, we read it there and the details are on the screen, how he prepares himself for prayer. We see that he did supplication. He put on sackcloth and ashes, indicating his mourning for the plight of his people in captivity. And he uses the language of God's word, as you can see there on the screen, of his, in his prayer of that which we find in Jeremiah 29. You can see quite clearly, if we just take maybe one or two elements, you know, hearken, hear and hearken, find me, defer not, turn away your captivity, understand the matter and consider the vision, okay, not quite so clear, we'll bring you again into this place to restore and build Jerusalem. Some of it, the exact language, some of it, the sentiments, you can see that. He was following, he was uh, using the language of Jeremiah in his own prayer. As well as that, he used his own words, as we know, and about his own relationship with his God, just like we do, use God's word in our prayers, but also our own words and our own relationship. And so we see in this prayer, Daniel's wonderful personal relationship with his God and his own personal confession before his God, too. You might want to colour, it's up to you, but I've marked them here, the references. So here we find how he prayed unto the Lord, my God. The phrase my God occurs in verse 4 and in verse 20. Oh, my God, in verse 18 and 19. I hear the prayer of thy servant in verse 17. And I beseech thee. This is a personal plea. Yes, he does pray for the people, as we shall see. But it was also for him. It was about his relationship. Yahweh was my God. There's a personal relationship emphasized there. Um, this is brought out as, as you can see through the various um, verses that I refer to. And therefore, this prayer was a deep desire to fulfill prophecy by God for the people of Israel, just as it was his own personal desire. It was not one or the other. It was both. And we can see that he says it's also my supplication. We saw that in verse uh, 3. Let's go to verse 20 because there's a few references there. This is commenting on the prayer. So it's not part of it. And it's really part of the response. But it sort of summarizes what Daniel had done. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. And presenting my supplication before Yahweh my God for the holy mountain of my God. While he was in that process then we have the response. As I said we'll look at later. So we can see there, there's some powerful lessons there for us, brethren and sisters. He's making my confession. We see that back in verse 4. We read it together. You can just cast your eye at that. And he's confessing my sin we've just read. Daniel's sins. The man that they could find nothing wrong with except to do with his God when they tried to find reason before the king to bring him disrepute. And then they made up that law and we sort of considered that already, haven't we? And therefore, some powerful lessons that we are to use God's word in our own prayers, believing in the coming fulfillment of what God's prophecies are yet to be fulfilled with a direct personal response and relationship with our God in which we acknowledge our own and confess our own sins. And that's crucial 
in our reconciliation. Again, we won't turn there, but in Romans 10 verse 10 it says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that's what this man does. And this is what we should do, is we associate ourselves also with the sins of our people, the sins of our community, as we love just as Daniel did. And that's what Daniel also does in this chapter that's quite well known for, Daniel's personal association with the people he loved. He didn't sort of reject them and all think he was higher or better, but he associated with them. That's one of the wonderful acts of humility of Daniel. Here are they are, if you want to colour these ones in. We have sinned and committed iniquity. Let's just, you know, this one will run through just to prove the point. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity. Verse 8, oh, at the end of the verse, because we have sinned against thee. Verse 11, at the end, because we have sinned against him. Verse 13, where it says we might turn from our iniquities. And then verse 15 as well, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So you can see he's not saying they, they, we. He, he's in it with his people. And he really associates with them. Also, the pronoun we have is us. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face. is isn't just to my people, but it's to us. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongeth to us, but unto us confusion of faces. Verse 8, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. And then he also uses the third, this confusion of faces in contrast to the righteousness that belongs to God. You can see that from the beginning of verse 7. And then thirdly, it's because of our sins. See that in verse 16, where it says, because of, halfway through the verse, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. And so very clearly, there's this strong personal association that the great men and women of God do. And we see that in other prayers. But here, it's Daniel's prayer. And so with that, let's just consider what the structure of this prayer is, brethren and sisters, together. It's quite a um, so let's do that. And obviously, we've got the altar of incense. That's what we know, prayer, symbolic of incense. So the first bit is, verse 4 really is the praise of God's name that favours those that love him. He's prejudiced. He's prejudiced to those that love him, that keep his commandments, that uphold what he says is right and wrong. Five to six, we have that then confession and acknowledgement of the sins and failure to listen to the prophet sent to call them to repentance. God did his best that we read in Jeremiah at the moment, that they might turn back to him, yet they did not. But he tried. And Daniel recognises that. Verses 7 to 8, we've got God's righteous judgment and character in dispersing Israel. He prophesied it way back in Deuteronomy 28 and he was fulfilling it. In verse 9 to 12, we're told Israel was rebellious. He says, we were rebellious. We transgressing God's law and ignoring the warnings given by the prophets. And we'll consider the different sins and the different what they mean and a bit later on. 13 to 14, Israel failed to perceive in this prayer, why they were suffering as a nation. Daniel acknowledges that. They don't understand. They don't know why this has occurred. Yet they should. If they read their scriptures, they would know. Verse 15 to 16, he asked God to remember why he'd created them as a people. And to turn his anger away. So that they may go back to the land. That they may no longer be in captivity. 
to show the other side of his character. Yes, he's upholding truth, but he also wanted the mercy of God. 17 to 18, he desires God to hear, to favour Jerusalem once again, calling on his mercy. He acknowledges, verse 18, we read it there, not, we do not present our supplications before thee because of our righteousness, before thee for our righteousness. It's not because of what we are as a nation and what we deserve, but for thy great mercies, for his covenant, for his purpose, for the fulfilment of his word. And he appeals to God to act, to uphold his name. And that's quite a strong theme as we shall see as well in this, in this the purpose of God, the fulfilment of his name, the fulfilment of that purpose through his people, through his people going back to witness in the land, to witness to the power of God. And so you can see the structure of Daniel's prayer there. If you want to get that down later, you can. Probably can't write that quickly. And so what was it he confesses about the people of Israel? Yes, he says, we've seen, we've committed iniquity. So what's all that about? Well, first of all, it's what they've done. And if you go through the chapter carefully, then you find these phrases. We've seen it in other ways. We have sinned. That means they've missed the mark. We as a nation have failed in the very reason why we exist as a nation, called out of all nations, called out of Egypt, to give glory to him. We've missed the mark. We've not achieved that. We've committed iniquity. Uh, you can see that in verse 5. We've sinned and we've committed iniquity. Sorry. What does that mean? We've twisted We've perverted, as the word means, the very um, God's law to do wrong. We've twisted it for our own means as a nation. We've done wickedly. We've violated. We've condemned his law by our behaviour. We've rebelled. Well, that's easy. We re the word means revolted. That's what they've done. He says, look, we've revolted against your commandments. We've turned our back. We've done our own thing. We've departed from thy precepts and thy judgments. That's a, a turning aside. We're no longer walking in the way. This is the way walking in it. But we've gone to the left or we've gone to the right as a nation. And we've trespassed against thee. We can see that in verse 7 and 11. We've read it, so I'm going to read every verse, but you can see it there. We've trespassed against thee. God's moral code of what right and wrong is. The standards that he'd given, they are just trespassed against. they are gone against. And so they were all obvious ways that they had failed by doing these things, what they had committed, what they'd done, what they'd thought, how they behaved. But it's also about what they failed to do as a nation. As we know, there's the sin that we do, but there's the sin where we fail to do things. And that's picked up in the chapter as well. And the key thing you know, I noticed as I studied this was the aspect that they, of this connection between the voice of God and responding the voice of God to obey. The voice of God through his prophets that they may obey and follow what he wants. We see it there in verse 6. Let's turn to that one or look at that. Neither we hearken unto thy servants the prophets which spake in thy name to our kings and our princes and our fathers to all the people of the land. We didn't hearken. We didn't, the words that means obeyed to the servants, the prophets. We didn't listen. We failed to do what we should have done. We see it in verse 10 there. Neither have we obeyed, it doesn't say the prophets this time, it just says the voice of the Lord our God. Hearing the prophet, you heard the voice of the Lord your God. And therefore it's synonymous. And therefore you heard the voice, this is God speaking to his people, and they didn't listen, and they didn't obey. You see there again in verse 11. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law even by their departing, that they might not obey thy voice. 
There it is again, that link between the voice and obedience. And then verse 14 again we see, Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. We did not obey what we were told through the prophets, what we were told through the law, what God wanted us to hear. So they failed, didn't they? They'd failed in their history. They were failing at the recent time that he prayed. Before their captivity, in their captivity, they hadn't changed. They failed to do what God had tried to do through his prophets. Even sending Ezekiel to them while they were in captivity. And then Daniel also here. There was no excuse. They'd heard the voice of the Lord, hadn't they? As James also says, therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James 4.17, and that's what had happened here. Brethren and sisters, I find that a powerful lesson again for us to ensure that we are obedient because we are listening to God's word, God's voice through the word of God, through the scriptures, through his prophets, through his greatest prophet, the greater prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to follow the failure of Israel. And sadly, you and I know of brothers and sisters that walk no more with us, that have rebelled, that have transgressed that have rejected, that have disobeyed. And we pray that in time they may return because that's what Daniel prayed for his people. And that's what we should do as well for our people. Is there a brother and sister that you need to remember in your prayers that not, doesn't come here anymore? Was not finding it so hard and difficult in this time of isolation that they're not coming to the breaking of bread and to our meetings and feeling the pull of the world? You examine your life, I examine mine, reply the lessons of Daniel. It's a wonderful prayer, but it's got to become here, hasn't it? It's got to impact on us. And so these sins that we've looked at there bring shame to God's name. It doesn't honour him because his, God's name defines morality. That's what is right and wrong, not what the world says. God is morality. It is his purpose. And we said that's through this chapter, and it is there. God's name is brought into shame by their behaviour. And that's why Daniel is so urgently praying for them to return, that that name might be upheld. He says, Thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name. Verse 6, we read it. Did you notice it? There it is. The prophets which spake in thy name. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. It wasn't just, oh, you know, I've got something to say. It was in the God's name. They represented him. They were his prophets. And there was the test of the prophet that proved that they were his prophets. And so it's his, in his name, which you read there. The concept is repeated again in verse 10. Sorry, not verse 10, apologies. This, um, in verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renowned. My AV margin, if you look against gotten, has got a number four, made thee a name. The miracle of their deliverance from Egypt made a name. We know Rahab talked about that when she talked to the spies. We know it's still here at the time of Daniel, we know that that was still in the nations round about. The time of Nehemiah, they talked about it. That the people had been brought out of Egypt and the miraculous things. It was part of the folklore of their time. They knew of his name, that the God of the Israelites, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Jews, had caused their deliverance miraculously from Egypt. And therefore, because of that, he wanted 
God to act. It's there in verse 18 as well, which he says, Jerusalem, which is called by thy name, 18 and 19. So it says there in the city, not the word Jerusalem, but the word city, which is called by thy name. And so it's not just the deliverance, but it's also the place, isn't it? Called by thy name, which is the name which is there because of it is the apple of his eye. And it's also his people. Verse 19, it reinforces the city and the people in there. For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And so you can see all the way through the place, the people, the existence as a nation was all associated with the name of God to give him honour, to give him glory. Yet they'd brought shame. They had brought shame in all these ways before him. Shame in the fact that Jerusalem was just a heap of ruins. It was in desolation. The zenith that it had been in the time of Solomon, in the time of David before that, established it as the kingdom's capital of Israel, had long gone. The shame that as a people, they were now scattered everywhere. They were in the Babylonian Empire. They'd been scattered. And therefore, Daniel desires for Israel to go back to the land. He desires a rebirth of the nation referring back to when their name was made when they were born as a nation that they may be obedient and honor his name and our behavior as well brethren and sisters either brings honor or shame to the name that we bear for each one of us is a spouse to that name haven't we we bear the family name we are sons and daughters of the living god and therefore we either uphold it and honor it and obedient to it and therefore please him and we're an example to others to bring them unto christ unto god showing forth that light or we bring it into disrepute and we dishonor and people think well i thought you were a bible believer or that you, you followed god or you're a disciple of the lord jesus christ and you behave speak act think react like that so there's a powerful lesson there for us as well and in this wonderful prayer of Daniel's, we also get how he acknowledges that God was right to judge his people. Although they were in captivity, although the desolations had occurred, God was right. It was inevitable that judgment would come. His standard of what he said he wanted from his people had been broken. It had been violated and therefore God had to act to uphold what was right in his sight. It was necessary. So God was just in judging his people. We see that. It's here quite a few times. It's in this little section, verse 11 to 13. Transgress thy law. Let's have a look at it. He acknowledges it in verse 11. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us. We transgressed and the curse came. Cause and effect. We failed to uphold what you decreed and therefore the curses that were promised have occurred verse 11 you can see it there at the end where it says carrying on and the oath which is written in the law of moses that oath which had been written what god had promised would occur was there the consequences of their decisions of how to behave to obey or not to obey was there in the law and again in verse 12 we see it again and he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us and against our judges and judged us by bringing upon us a great evil confirmed his words which he spake against us 
It's not something hidden. It wasn't something that was sprung on Israel. It wasn't something that was, you know, suddenly revealed. It was clear before you do this, this will occur. You do that, that will occur. Obedience, blessing. Disobedience, cursing. Mount Gerizim and Ebal. There it was in their law. And they knew these things. And they knew that disobedience would bring judgment. Disobedience would bring judgment and condemnation. And now God was doing that to them. He was confirming that to them. He indicates that in verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto confusion of faces is at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off. Though all the countries, sorry, through all the countries where thou hast driven them because of their trespasses that they have trespassed against thee. It was prophesied. There's nothing new. You go to Deuteronomy 28, verse 25 and 36 talks of deportation and captivity. Verse 37 talks of being despised and rejected. And verse 65, a people who are disobedient, you will get these curses. So they're all links to those things that, we've, that are being prophesied here. And I just want to make the point here as well. It's sort of saying the same thing in some ways, but you can see I've got a little word evil there in blue. It just keeps popping up. You can see that in verse 12. He confirmed his words by bringing upon this great evil. God was behind this evil. I create good, I create evil. I create this situation. Uh, verse 13, you can see all this evil has come upon us. And then verse 14, which we haven't looked at yet. Therefore hath Yahweh watched upon the evil. He's watched upon the evil. He brought that evil. Because it was a consequence of their um, disobedience and their bad behaviour. Brothers and sisters, we have a choice too, don't we? Just like Israel, we know what the standard is. And there's no surprise when Christ comes. What are we going to be judged by? Just like Israel, we're going to be judged by his word. John 12 verse 48 says, He that rejecteth me receiveth not my words, but hath one that judgeth him. What one is that? The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The word that he has spoken, the word that was made flesh and lived those principles that we follow as brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the standard that God will judge us by and he will judge our decisions in either upholding that standard or bringing shame to that standard and disrepute to that standard. And so therefore we need to consider our own lives that we don't have God's judgment of condemnation through the Lord Jesus Christ when he makes that judgment for each one of us in that day that's shortly to be here. And Daniel expresses their past failures as a nation and understands why this evil has been experienced. And we see that now. God desired to see from him, from him and his people a moral reform. That's what it was all about, is to teach them a lesson that they may come back to him. And we see that very clearly in these verses. The first one is a belief the phrase, I've called it belief, but the phrase we're given is a prayer unto our God. Verse 13, let's look at this. And then his prayer as he pleads with God that his people may do this. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before Yahweh our God. Why has this come about? Oh, let's go back to the law. Let's read the law. Oh, that's why it's come about. Because we've done this behavior. We've been disobedient with those sins we've just considered earlier. That's why. He wanted a response to restore a relationship, a dependency on God. 
through open communication with him. Not an ignoring of him, but an open, honest, open heart toward their God by prayer. A communication, a talking to their God. God talking to them through their, his word and them talking back to him through prayer. You do that because you believe in your God. You believe in a God. You believe in the power of that God and the existence of that God and the ability of that God. That they, we might turn from our iniquities or repent. Going on the verse, that we might turn from our iniquities. Means to turn back. Means to return. Return to what? To God's standards. To a repentance from their past sins. A changed behaviour is what Daniel prays for his people that might occur. And finally, to convert, as we have here, and understand thy truth. Not just know it and repeat it parrot fashion, but to be converted, to understand is deeper, isn't it? To consider and to comprehend and have a personal conviction. This is my life. This is what I want to do. This is as a nation, we are going to follow what God determines is right and wrong and not what we think is right and wrong. We're going to have a new direction in life, seeking to uphold God's standards and not our own as a nation, wanting to please him and not ourselves. And with that thought, he then pleads with very strong emotion. I don't know if he shed tears, it doesn't tell us that. But often when we pour out our heart in emotion, in prayer, that's what happens, isn't it? Some of us are more emotional than others, I know that. But even if it's really heartfelt and really deep and it's really personal and pertinent, whatever that is, then usually tears form and often flow. And his tears, his flow, or his emotion, as we can say that much, was for the Jerusalem. Jerusalem that these people have been taken from. And look, you can see all the references. We're not going to go through them all there. You can see them listed. But Jerusalem is the focus of his pleas. And it is the capital of that land. It is the apple of his eye. It, and we see that throughout here. It's where God is worshipped in his sanctuary. Let's just keep to Daniel chapter 9 and marker and just flick over to Zechariah. Zechariah 8. Because that just puts one of those little phrases I've got in blue up there, which the phrase is the um, holy mountain. And in Zechariah 8 verse 3, we see the two are linked together. In case we're in any doubt, that's talking about Jerusalem. So Zechariah 8 verse 3, Thus saith Yahweh, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. It's talking of future. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So you can see it's associated. So we have it often termed Jerusalem or the holy mountain or even thy sanctuary. If we go back to Daniel 9, the sanctuary, upon thy sanctuary that is desolate. We know the sanctuary obviously referred to the temple. That wonderful temple that had been built by Solomon and was um, there until it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he desires that to be rebuilt. He knows this will only occur when God's mercies and not the nation's quality of repentance occurs. He knows it's the time for God's mercy to be shown. He knows that Jerusalem, it will be restored. And he passionately pleads for it. He pleads that God would look upon it and would remember them as a people. In verse 17 there, as I said, he says there, calls thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary. What does that mean, your face to shine? Well, I think it's a reference back to number six. 
If you just go to that, back to number six, it's probably the first time we get this clearly associated with Israel, but it's God's face to shine, and we had it actually recently with Chloe's baptism and the receiving in, where we sing these words. It's the blessing of that of the heir and priesthood, but it's wider than that, isn't it? So number six and verse 23, speak unto Aaron and his sons, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Here it is. The Lord, or Yahweh, make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. And in doing that, being gracious, having mercy, his face shining, it's the face of God that is showing mercy and grace. The Lord, or Yahweh, lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That's what's the result of this mercy, of this um, graciousness, of his lifting up his countenance, making his face to shine upon them, is peace or fellowship or unity. And therefore here in Daniel's prayer, when he asks for God's face to shine, he wants his mercy. He wants his peace with his people. He wants that uh, restored fellowship together. And that's in sharp contrast to that little phrase that said would explain in verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongeth to thee, but unto us confusion of faces. Plural. Confusion of faces. You know, what part of our character? Because face isn't just the look, it's the personality. The character do we show. We're confused. We do this, we do that, we rebel, we don't listen. We see that again and we saw that in verse 8. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face. Unlike the face that Daniel wanted shown to his people. A face that shone mercy, as we've read there. The mercy upon his sanctuary. And so that helps us to understand that what that face, confusion of faces means. It means the different moral standards that they'd applied. Opposed to the perfect standard of God, of his morality, full of grace and truth. Mercy and truth. Those qualities that are beautifully balanced. That he's shown the truth of God in the judgment of them. And now Daniel wants the mercy of God to be shown in restoring them. And then in verse 18, he indicates here how he, got, he wants God to um, listen. And we'll look at that. So we're now in the passionate part of this prayer. Coming to the end in a sense the climax is interrupted. And we see here how his anger and wrath were to be turned away. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all that are about us. So he wants the God to turn away his face, doesn't he? He wants him to consider his people. And we see here, he wants in verse 17, him to hear the prayer. Now, therefore, O Lord, hear the prayer of thy servant and thy supplications. And here it was, cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. He wants him to hear the prayer of his servant. We'll come back to the colours in a minute. Verse 18, O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations. He wants them to see the desolations, the land desolate, the city desolate, the place of his apple of his eye, as we said. And then verse 19, he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And you can see in this, the way I've broken it up there and coloured it for you, you can see that anger, the wrath being turned away, 
with a different face, the other side of God to be shown. And with that, he wants him to hear the prayer of thy servant. Incline thine ear, hear, hearken. He wants God to listen to this prayer. He wants God to respond to that prayer. A hearing that he wishes for action. Action we see in those green words, forgive, do, defer not. He doesn't want God just to hear and note. He wants God to act. He wants God to fulfill his word of prophecy that he's read in Jeremiah, that he believes in, that he's praying as a response, as indicated in God's word. Action because of the three powerful reasons that are indicated there in white, why God should do it. Because Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach. He doesn't want God's name in reproach anymore. He wants it honoured for thy great mercies about his character. Because of your mercy, please act to uphold that you are not a God of just judgment and vindication, but a God of mercy and of love. And finally, for thine own sake, for your purpose, that your purpose may be achieved. I want you to act, Lord. I want you to not hold back, to listen now, to act. That quality of righteousness that brought judgment righteousness that was there because it was upheld through judgment a judgment on the people on the city on the temple on the land because of their sins now he wanted restored if they loved him and kept his standards that there would be no condemnation necessary and we see in this wonderful prayer how god's righteous character is honored in the words of daniel we see it here in verse four we haven't really Consider verse 4, but it's there, we read it. That God's covenant mercy and the aspects in blue will relate to his character, his righteousness, what God says is right and wrong, what he says is good and evil. We see it in verse 4 there. And I prayed unto Yahweh my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and that keep his commandments. What he says you should do you shouldn't do how you should behave how you should think how you should respond what he says is the right way very clear isn't it brethren and sisters he describes him as a great or important a distinguished god a dreadful or awesome as the word means emphasizing his power and his might that they'd witnessed as he carried out his judgment however with that he says you keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him to them, like Daniel, his faithful servant, one that was beloved, as we know. And then we see in verse 7 how God, in his prayer, he says, You determine righteousness. We read it there in verse 7 O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee. You are righteousness. You are what is right and wrong in this world. You determine it, O Lord. You know what is right and wrong. You tell us what is right and wrong. Now, therefore, is the determiner of moral standards that you are the originator of. And we know that these are constant. He says that in verse 7 as well, doesn't he? Unlike the confusion of faces, we saw that, you're not like that. You're constant. It belongeth to you. You're that face that is consistent. Truth when it's needed, mercy when it's needed. And then we see it, God is balanced. We see that in verse 9, to the Lord our God belongeth mercies and forgiveness, though we've rebelled against him. Yes, there's righteousness and truth, but there's also mercy, as we said there, and his forgiveness. The aspects of character that, of our God that makes restoration possible. That makes the prayer of Daniel have purpose, have meaning. Because otherwise, if God didn't, wasn't merciful and gracious and uphold his word and just vindictive, then there would be no point. But he upholds it. He, despite their rebellion, in, in his mercies and 
forgiveness. He allows that balance. He allows the restoration of his people. And as we said, God's judgment upholds his righteousness. Verse 14. Therefore hath Yahweh watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. We had it coming to us. This is right and just. It's not unfair of our God. And therefore, judgment causes righteousness to be upheld. It defines that there is a standard. If there's no judgment, anything goes. There's no standard. We see that in the world today. What standard? Your standard? My standard? No judgment. But when there's a judgment, you've crossed the line and that's wrong and this is right, then a standard is upheld and that's what God is doing here. And God's righteousness will call Israel's restoration. Verse 16, we saw it there. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee. According to your righteousness, according to what you have said in your word, what you said through your prophet, Jeremiah. According to your righteousness, where I want that your to uphold your covenant with your people, to them that love thee, to be restore Jerusalem, that it may no longer be a reproach, and your people to return from captivity. So having considered then, brothers and sisters, this wonderful prayer, some of the themes, what are the key lessons for you and I as we go home, tomorrow, another day, work, retirement, school, I don't know, other things? <coughs> well, we... It's rather sombre this, isn't it? But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The end of Babylonian times was at hand for Daniel. And he was sober, he watched unto prayer. No doubt facing Jerusalem. He not got time to show you all the links to Solomon's prayer. Or Nehemiah's prayer, sadly. But I've got those if you're interested. And we also are on the threshold of the end of Gentile times looking for the restoration ultimately of Jerusalem with the king of kings in Mount Zion. And Daniel prays to his God, doesn't he? For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. They're over Daniel and they'll be over you. You'll hear our prayer tonight. You'll hear our prayer whenever we talk to him and communicate. And his ears are open unto their prayers. Remember Daniel said, hearken, hearken, hear, that he may hear and do, not just to hearken, and oh, that's interesting, that you may obey, that you may follow through what you've promised. Notice this a little bit as well, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. The face of the Lord, he wants, Daniel prayed for the face of God to shine on his people, because we know that the face of the Lord is against, against them that do evil, but hopefully to us who do not evil, it won't be against us, but for us. And confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that ye may be healed. Daniel prayed for his people. Do we pray for our ecclesia? Do we pray for individuals in that ecclesia? Not just to be healed from the physical infirmities, but from mental issues or spiritual issues. Is that going to be in your prayer tonight? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This man Daniel was praying. And it was so effectual, God said, Get down there, Gabriel, right now, and you're going to answer that prayer. We'll consider that next week. But we're effectual. If we're righteous and trying to do, he'll hear our prayer. And he can avail much. And the power of prayer, I've, no doubt you've witnessed in your life as I've witnessed in mine, never ceases to amaze me how God knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows circumstances before we're there. And the effectual prayer of a righteous man does avail much. 
Thank you, brethren and sisters and young people.